<laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> ha! <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 4. I'm your host, Otis Jarry, and in this episode... I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Kyle Harrison. Tonight, you'll hear tales of not-so-Oscar-worthy pictures, more naughty than nice lists, and music to raise more than your spirits. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Imagine minding your own business when suddenly you're pulled into a situation you cannot easily escape. Sound like a bad movie? Well, in this instance, the movie itself may not be the highest quality, but it appeals to a certain taste. Filmmakers don't take kindly to bad reviews. Without further ado, I present to you four out of five stars. My office is quite dusty, a reflection of my soul. My secretary Janice might say. 
I don't go in there often except to grab a new notebook from my desk drawer or grab a pot of coffee. Things go unnoticed pretty often. And mail piles up because I have Janus to sort out what's pressing and what's not. The only reason I even paid attention to the package was because I sneezed on it. The dust had caused my allergies to act up, and I turned to put my coffee down and avoid having to spill it all over me. It was a simple brown box with my name on it, hastily written with a sharpie, but no return address, so I asked her about it. Janice was none the wiser and suggested I just open it. So I fumbled through my drawers to find a box cutter. Inside were several old reels, none of which had any labels on them, and a letter typed out addressed to me as well. Dear Mr. Patterson, I understand you're a film critic, and your reviews give directors and producers a chance to make a name for themselves in this ever-changing entertainment industry. Allow me to throw my hat into the ring, if you will. Enclosed, you'll find three sample films that I've been working on, which I feel really capture the essence of the human spirit in a way never possible before. I ask that you keep those recordings to yourself and show no one else until we have further correspondence. And if they are to your liking, perhaps we can discuss a future partnership. Mitchell Crowley, CEO of Haven Films. I put the letter aside and googled Haven Films. Nothing came up, which immediately told me this was an upstart company looking to basically bribe me to write stellar reviews of their works in the hopes it would give them an edge. Next, I did a quick search on Crowley himself, but there were actually several people with the name, so it was difficult to be sure which one might actually be him, since all of the social media was private. I looked down at the old film reels again. My curiosity peaked. Clearly, Mr. Crowley knew that I was a collector of this sort of thing and wanted to appeal to my vanity by sending them in this classic form. I decided to go ahead and give it a shot, telling Janice to take the films to my private viewing studio and then handling a few other errands. The studio was just a floor above where I regularly handled my office duties, and honestly, the only reason I even kept it there was because it gave me peace and quiet to experience films alone. I've always felt that the only way to keep a film pure is having no background noise, no outside influence, and to have the same film captured on an old reel, it felt like I was getting exactly what I wanted. Christmas was early. My entire facility was, in fact, an old rundown theater, capturing nostalgia days of days gone by. I even had a projector from the 1950s, something that I only took out for special occasions when I really wanted to take a step back in time. I wasn't sure why, but it felt like the gift from Haven Films was just such a special event. So I went ahead and got myself a bottle of wine from my cellar, which in fact was once a concession stand back in the glory days, then turned the lights down low and moved into the studio. The projector was about as dusty as the films themselves. It took a few moments to clean it and make sure it would even work. My hands were not as able as they were once, so threading the film to the projector took a bit of time to make sure it would run properly. 
The process came back to me with ease, but it still made my fingers feel weary from the tiresome work. I tried to get a good look at some of the stills in the film, but it was far too dark and my eyes were far too old. Besides which, I told myself it might be a good surprise if I didn't know. I've done this for ages now, probably longer than anyone else in the local area. My words can make a break film, so it was difficult to surprise me. As I settled down in my lonesome seat and waited for the projector to reveal what Haven Films had prepared for me, I wondered if this would be something unique or something trivial. The film was titled Sample One, which matched what Crowley had said in his letter. These were not full-fledged motion pictures, but merely samples of his cinematic experience. It was in black and white, an unexpected but welcome change in this modern age, although immediately that made it difficult to determine what was happening. It wasn't long, though, I discerned that this was some kind of gory horror film, because the first scene focused on a pile of corpses, all with hands, feet, and heads cut off. I have to admit it was appalling and viciously graphic to see the mannequins lying there and looking so realistic. It made me feel uncomfortable as nearby an unseen figure burned the corpses and the screen filled with their horrid screams. I couldn't help but wonder if Crowley was hoping to shock the audience with such a display and it only got worse from there. To describe the cycle of nightmarish images and strange things I saw, over the next few minutes, would not do it proper justice. In fact, I think that if I did, all of you would hear this tale and likely find yourselves beyond sanity as well. It was so terrible, I had to stop the projector and take a bathroom break to vomit. My stomach settling, I dared to look at the other films and hope they were better. Well, they were not. In fact, I would wager the next two were actually worse. Feet I didn't think was possible. I didn't finish either film. I was so disgusted with them. As soon as I stopped reeling from the disgusting portrayal of movies that I'd seen, I immediately stormed back downstairs to find Janice. But I hadn't realized that it was well past closing. Despite the fact that the awful movies were unwatchable, I'd wasted the rest of my afternoon attempting to understand the pathetic drivel. Like any good critic, this set my mind on fire to write a strong and compelling review against Haven Films. So I went home and pulled out my trusty typewriter, immediately condemning them for this sorry excuse of samples that they'd sent. Only the most degrading and shameful human beings would consider watching this trash, or so I said. As I finished the short, vent-filled essay, I became frustrated and realized I couldn't simply publish the article. These movies were so terrible, I didn't want my name associated with them at all. Instead, I placed the typewriter letter in an envelope and kept it safe until morning so I could figure out where the films had come from. Haven Films and Crawley needed to know how indignant I was but I wasn't about to make them a spectacle. Often, that was what these upstart companies wanted. Any news, even if it was a scathing review, was still publicity. Janice told me she'd searched for a return address while I went to the studio and gathered up the films. 
I had a mind to burn them, honestly. No one should be subjected to that kind of tripe, I thought to myself as I placed them back in the box. Instead, I realized that damage of property could be something they might hold against me. So, once she knew where to send it, I placed the letter inside and resealed the box. I didn't think much of it over the next week. Occasionally, images of the terrible films would flash across my mind. People being tortured and screaming, a living kaleidoscope of hell. The more I thought of those scenes, I realized that they were so realistic, it made me wonder what actors would allow themselves to be subjected to this sort of abuse from a company. One scene in particular, a man had nails driven through his private parts. It was enough to make me want to stop eating. Disturbed and troubled, that was the only way to properly describe whoever had authorized these movies, and I didn't want to ever hear from them again. But I wasn't going to get that wish, because about eight days after returning the first box, Janice told me I had another package from Haven Films. This time, it included six films, along with another letter from Mitchell Crowley. Dear Mr. Patterson, I'm sorry to hear the first samples of our work were not to your liking. However, I implore you to study the next films I've sent with a better understanding of the work we do here. This is a look into the very soul of our humanity and discovering what it is that we as people are capable of. Sure lengths we will go to in order to obtain success. It occurs to me in your review, said a few statements that were not accurate, so I wish to clarify this matter. None of the people working for Haven Films are mentally ill or coerced. Instead, they're offered a substantial wage to endure some of the most difficult scenes ever captured on motion camera. This leads me to the second subject, which I find offensive. You implied that the samples we sent were sloppy and gruesome gore material that belonged in a dollar trash bin or a garbage heap. You said that watching these depictions made you feel that the age of quality films are gone. I'm letting you know that every scene in our samples are authentic and designed to capture raw and real emotions from our cast. They endure the most difficult moments because of the legacy it leaves behind. Please watch the following films and kindly reconsider your opinion of us. There's so much more we have to offer. Mitchell Crowley, CEO of Haven Films. Reading the letter had me scratching my head. Was Crowley suggesting that the films I saw were not merely makeup and props? Actual people were involved in this torture experiment? It didn't sound possible, but then again, I'd heard of others who were willing to work for mob bosses or crime organizations when they were in over their heads. To think these poor people were being tortured and paid for it simply to make the dreams of this mad company a reality. I scooped up the films and went to my viewing theater immediately, grabbing my notebook and deciding to focus on every detail I could of the movies. It was not easy. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Writing down how someone had their nipples cut off or their head slowly scalped or worse. It's a sort of mental torture I thought I only saw on the big screen. To think these people were willing did this for a price, made me also realize that I had to find out who they were and shut them down. This was my new goal. I wasn't just going to simply destroy the films. I would make sure Haven Film never hurt anyone ever again. So instead of focusing on the grisly detail of the movie, I studied the features of the people that showed up on camera, writing down any distinctive facial features. I'm not a great artist, but I sketched a little. I wanted this to be accurate so I could find them, stop Haven, and others like them that were taking advantage of people in these sorts of situations, blackmailing them. Once I was sure that I'd written some pertinent details, I stopped the reels, took a long sigh. Now the real work began. I took my sketches and notes downstairs and called Janice into a conference room explaining as best as I could what was happening. She was clearly confused, but did her best to follow along with minimal questions. Get these to the police if possible. I can provide the reels should they require further evidence, I told her. Janice handled it as promptly as she could. In fact, by the next morning, we actually had results. But it wasn't good news that she had to share. She told me that the police were surprised by the statement we made, and when we provided the sketch, they informed us the actor we'd seen on several of the reels had been a missing person for almost a year. His name was Danny Warrens, and his family had no clue what had happened to him. Sadly, there was nothing connecting Danny to Haven Films, but that was because, as far as the authorities could tell, the company didn't exist. They wanted to pick up the reels, though, I was more than happy to give them anything they needed. I will admit, when they arrived and took the films, it made me on edge. I'm not sure why, though. I wasn't the one being investigated here. But this type of situation was not normal. Not in the slightest. The officers had several questions for me, mostly about how we came into possession of the films. But Janice admitted the return address she had for them appeared to be bogus. Yet they'd responded when I returned the first batch of films, so it was possible more communications could come if we asked. For now, we can't make them aware of this investigation, so treat it like it's business as usual. In fact, this might be a good chance for us to find out more about their company altogether. Perhaps we could ask for a meeting, one officer suggested. His idea had merit. Crowley was surely the one behind all so if I asked for an in-person meeting, I didn't see a reason why he'd turn it down 
So I told the officers I'd write them first thing the next morning. My reviews were succinct, but far less accurate than the first time. I wanted to adjust my tone to appeal to Crowley. I had to stomach the lies. I wrote that I was fascinated by his use of cameras, angles, and other details in the film. It wasn't easy to find anything exciting to say about the films, so I ended it by asking him to come by my theater with the next badge. We can discuss in person a possible partnership like you suggested, I wrote. I wasn't sure what sort of response I'd get, but the police insisted that any communication at all could be something they used to learn more about the company itself. I can't lurk in the shadows forever, one of them said. The next morning, a letter did come, along with a new reel. It was labeled to be explicitly opened only by me. Reading that made me nervous. I was Crowley aware that I was planning on shutting down his old operation? What if he became skittish and ran? The letter further worried me. Mr. Patterson, I had hoped to have a solid foundation of trust to begin our new partnership with. However, that seems to be not the case because of the interference of your partner, Janice. She went above and beyond her duties and responsibilities and it's led to some rather unfortunate choices by me and my staff. I think you'll find the film we enclosed with this letter of utmost interest to you. Kind regards, Mitchell Crowley. I asked the police if Janice had done something that they weren't aware of, but they didn't have an answer. And when I rang her apartment, I got no response, which further worried me as I began to review the film. Catering to the director seemed to be the only chance to learn more. I took it to my private studio and told the officers I'd contact them as soon as I learned what I could. Less than a few minutes into the reel, I soon discovered that I wasn't going to be sharing this film with anyone. There in the screen, bound and gagged and partially naked, was my secretary. Janice was their newest victim. I heard an awful voice tell her to smile for the camera as she struggled, and the people holding the camera began to mark her body with a scalpel. It was all clear this wasn't just makeup. They were visibly scarring her. This star will be the first to burn bright for our business venture, and if you want to continue to light the sky at night, you'll do as we instruct you. First order of business should be obvious. Inform those hounds outside Call off the search, the director's twisted voice demanded. The film ended with Janice's scream and a message. Burn! They were threatening to kill her unless I complied. And I didn't have a clue what else to do. So I went to the police and told them that I was mistaken about everything, including Danny. They seemed confused, and at first they weren't buying it insisting that they remain in contact. So I did the next best thing and acted like a real jerk. I really didn't want all this anyway. It's disturbing my business. Haven Films is a new client and I can't afford to lose them. This sort of publicity could ruin me, I snapped. The police offered a business card and told me to call if I changed my mind. But I couldn't until I determined what Haven wanted. So I waited for the next letter. To my surprise, it didn't come. 
Instead, a package did, along with a simple note. Open in private. Before picking it up, I went to grab some gloves. Something told me this was different from the others. I took it to the dusty office and made room for it, carefully using a box cutter to open it. There was a phone attached to a human ear with duct tape inside. I did my best not to gag as I took the phone off and activated it. It should not have surprised me when the phone rang, but it still did. So it looks like we finally understand what's at stake here, Patterson. The future we build together has to be maintained. Despite the threats, I still thought I had a measure of power, so I challenged the voice. Eventually, my secretary will be dead, and you'll have nothing to bargain with. I'll turn over all evidence to the police, and you'll be apprehended. It'll be difficult for them to apprehend a ghost. We have no base of operations. No paper trail. This phone is easily hacked and can't be traced. All of the so-called evidence we had is in your possession. If anyone is guilty here, it's you. Who's to say that you weren't actually a front for the nefarious Haven films? What if these body parts began to be found at other places connected to you? How long before the police decide that you're the suspect? The voice said. <laughs> Preposterous. I stammered. But even as I said it, I knew that they were right. I had no way of providing anything that showed I was innocent. I'd allowed this to play out for far too long. Caught in this web, they'd taken someone close to me and now threatened to do even more. If you kill me, your films will never see the light of day, I warned. You still don't see the big picture. We're partners now. Our films need distribution. An audience must view the future we've envisioned. That's where you come in. With the police no longer snipping about, it should be easy to open the theater, the voice said. I tried to think fast of something that could be done to prevent this, and I had a crazy solution that just might work. If we're going to have a relationship, it needs to be more than just over the phone or through film. You need to come to my home, film something there. I need to have a look at what you're working on. Unless you're afraid a feeble old man could get the upper hand on you, I told them. They didn't object to it immediately, which told me there was a chance my plan might work. We can accommodate that. True experience needs to be in person. We can come tonight. Then the phone call ended. I had little time to prepare. I ran to my home and gathered my own filming equipment, discreetly placing it in one of the adjacent rooms to my sitting area and recording the door. Then I waited until it was almost so dark out that I thought I'd been stood up. When the door rang, I got a shiver down my spine. I had to go through with it for Janice. The man that was there didn't look the part of an evil director as I'd imagined. He was a short, frumpy 30-year-old with a balding head and glasses. And he was holding a gun. Is that really necessary, I asked. See desperation in your eyes, Patterson. So who knows what you might do. I came here because so far you've played by our rules. It's time you prove that you'll continue to do that, the man said. Where's Janice? I asked as he sat down and I offered him a beer. She isn't your concern. This new film needs to be a masterpiece. We discovered the perfect way for you to be free of us and for Haven's legacy to remain. 
They passed me what looked like a contract, and I got a frog in my throat. It was actually a last living testament. You want me to sign a legal agreement stating I own 50% of Haven Films, and to also be the star in your next movie? I can't sign this. Not until I'm sure Janice is safe, I told him. She's inconsequential. Not to me. Show me she's alive or I won't sign, I told him. The man sighed and reached for his phone. I knew it was the only chance I'd get and I lunged for him. He saw me jump, but it was too late. The gun fired off in his face. Blood spattered across my body and I fell back. I sat there, confused and stunned, before gathering the phone and calling the number. Yes, another voice said. Release the woman, you orders, I said, trying to mimic the other man's voice. Once I was sure Janice was safe, I looked at the contract and tore it up, tossing it into the trash. Then I called the police. The hidden camera I'd set up provided them the proof they needed of all that Haven Films had done. The next day, Janice was back, but unable to tell us more about her time away. She was traumatized beyond words. Still, I told myself that the worst was over, and I wouldn't be blackmailed by Haven anymore. The nightmare was at an end. But I shouldn't have counted my blessings so soon. The package arrived a week later with a new film and my name on it. I thought about turning it over the place, but the label intrigued me. Rising Star took it to the studio and felt my stomach turn end over end as I saw footage of myself in my house alongside their man. It was almost exactly shot for shot the same footage I had of his death, except this one made it look like I was the bad guy. As the reel came to an end, a dreadful sensation filled my body. A single message filled the black void of the screen. Interested in a sequel? I hope you enjoyed Four Out of Five Stars by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. Our very prolific author can be found almost everywhere you turn your head, from anthologies online and, of course, on this program and its archives. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. You know, it's very rare that the sequel lives up to the original, even if it's more profitable. I can only imagine how much they'll have to up the ante to make it worth the trouble. While we have a week to go before it's officially the Christmas holiday, why not whet your appetite with this little tale? When tragedy strikes and their child goes missing, a couple with their marriage on the rocks are about to learn a lesson on what the season is all about. They can make it all the way through the course, that is. Without further ado, I present to you 
12 days. Henry practically tugged my arm off to make it to the mall center. A lot of kids were waiting, and we were running late. It was getting dark outside already, and a gentle but prevalent fog rolled across the parking lot. But he insisted he needed to give Santa Claus his list for Christmas. Aren't you a little old for that, I said, trying to remember his next birthday and how old he'd be. Separation was taking its toll on me, and I was doing my best to appease my ex with a list of unreasonable expectations. The last thing I needed was for her to try to snatch away more custody time from me because I couldn't keep a schedule. Henry insisted, though, and told Santa a couple of times as I waited impatiently. And what of you, mister? Don't you have any wishes that Santa can grant? The mall employee asked as he walked Henry back to me. I gave the older man a dead stare and remarked, Sure, find a way for all my mistakes to go away. He gave me an odd look, and I pulled Henry away, my phone already ringing, incessantly because we'd missed the first bus. Come on, grab your things. I told my ten-year-old son as I heard the bus starting to break outside the mall lobby. I didn't feel like answering the phone until we were well away from snooping people. Too often, my problems were the gossip of others, and we were supposed to be happy during the holidays. I have to keep that image alive, I told myself. Together, we took off the cold and stepped into the vehicle, the driver greeting us with a traditional Merry Christmas. I didn't reciprocate the greeting as I forced Henry toward the back. My irritation was growing by the second as he whined for my attention. I found an empty seat and I shoved my luggage underneath it before returning to the driver and paying the fare. Henry climbed into the seat beside me and asked for his Nintendo Switch as I pulled out my headphones. It was a way to make it to Summersvale, and with the way the weather was shaping up, I knew sleeping would be difficult on the bus. The drive was slow but steady, and once I was sure that Henry was off in his game, I made a phone call. It was time to face the music. Lisa picked up on the fifth ring. As soon as we were connected, she started to berate me for being late. Not my fault. The school play ran late, and now there's this dreadful fog, I told her. It wasn't a complete lie. Things had gotten out of hand. Listen, I don't need more excuses, Dylan. This whole separation is hard enough without you trying to make things worse with your devil-may-care attitude. You better thank your lucky stars that the court said custody was 50-50, or I already would have Henry here with me, she snapped. Lisa, please, I'm trying my best to make this work. You know that Henry isn't the one that needs to suffer because of our fighting, I said. There wouldn't be any issues if you hadn't decided to sleep around. I couldn't argue with that, but I didn't want my anger to show even on my face as Henry saw I was raising my voice. He tugged at my shirt as I kept getting frustrated with his mother, and then I wound up shouting in his face to quit bothering me. Henry's eyes got teary and a few passengers shot me dirty looks as I got up and moved away from my son to continue the phone call. Did you seriously just yell at our son? Lisa snapped. I'm trying to do a million things here, I told her. 
Then Henry came up and was starting to get on my nerves again when I cupped the phone in my hand and told him to quit bothering me. Those were the last words I ever spoke to him. A moment later, the loudest, most powerful screeching noise I'd ever heard launched me into the air. I felt Henry's small fingers slip from my grasp as glass shattered and other passengers screamed in terror. My body slammed against the roof of the bus as the entire vehicle tumbled end over end off the road. Small fires, shrapnel, and smoke filled my vision as I fell around the interior of the bus like a rag doll. The last thing I remember clearly was a woman reaching for her own child's hand as the entire group of us screamed in agony. My vision blurry as I lay down, weakly calling out to Henry, only darkness answering me. I felt numbness and pain all at once when my vision returned. Fire was spreading inside the bus, and I heard moaning as people tried to crawl to safety. Blood was dripping off my forehead as I tried to move as well, searching everywhere nearby for any sign of Henry. My voice was hardly a whimper amid the throng of screams. It didn't sound like anyone was in any better shape than I was, and my son was nowhere to be seen. I could feel sharp metal ripping my leg apart, and I tried to move again, and I turned to see that one of the long metallic poles from the side of the bus was sticking straight through my right leg, making it impossible to even attempt to break. I lay there, weakly crying for Henry for what felt like hours. No help was coming. I even closed my eyes and said a prayer to God. It didn't feel like anyone was answering. I didn't know if I had ever felt more lonely than at that moment. But if I'd thought it couldn't get any worse, I was dead wrong. Somewhere between consciousness and unconsciousness, I finally heard Henry's voice. I was so weak I couldn't even open my eyes. Couldn't even tell him where I was. It almost felt like it was a dream as I heard a small voice crying out to me, and he fumbled in the shadows. I couldn't even see his face, only hear his pain. And I could do nothing. Other shapes mingled amid the fire, perhaps rescuers. They were trying to reach Henry. I couldn't find the energy to tell them to help my son, but somehow these strangers knew to save him first. I deserved to die after everything I'd done to my family. I thought to myself as one of the strangers loomed near to Henry. I couldn't see them from this distance, but they were rather obese and looked like they might be wearing a suit that was red and white, perhaps even a traditional Santa Claus costume. Was it the same man from the mall? This was confirmed moments later when I saw the stranger pull out a large bag from behind his bag the kind that the friendly Kringle from the North Pole might carry to shower a kid with toys on Christmas morning. He reached for Henry, and I heard my son make a yelp. You're hurting him, I said as loudly as I could. But the newcomer was paying me no mind. He had this weird belly laugh, not the friendly Santa by any means. And then he placed Henry inside the bag and tied it up. His muffled cries for help no longer heard. I was scrambling again, trying not to panic, as the stranger climbed back out of the wreckage. I tugged at the shrapnel and screamed, hoping Henry was safe. Then the fire grew so hot that I could hardly remain conscious anymore. I remember my last thought being for my son. 
hoping he'd forgive my earlier behavior. If I make it out of this alive, I swear I'll be better. I told any god that might be listening. Then the pain swept through my body again, and I fell into a deep sleep. When I woke, firefighters had found me and removed the metal pole from my leg. I was being carried on a stretcher to the outside, and my eyes were fluttering about as I asked the rescuers where Henry was at. They repeatedly told me to remain calm and got me to an ambulance nearby as I repeatedly tried to sit up and look at the other survivors. There weren't many of us. Some looked like they'd never walk again. Others didn't have any injuries at all, but just seemed so forlorn. Our entire lives had been turned upside down in a single instant. One of the paramedics got my information and I repeated my request to find my son. I didn't want to go to any hospital without him. They promised they would, and since the bleeding on my leg had stopped, they focused on the major injuries rather than my predicament. Staring toward the snowy road, I tried to figure out what could have caused our wreck to begin with. Had the driver fallen asleep? Had they miscalculated and slid across black ice? Half an hour later, the paramedics returned with questions about Henry. They'd searched the bus and found no other survivors. That's... It's not possible. I saw a man in a Santa suit rescue him. He's here somewhere, I said, as I forced myself to sit up. The first responders shared an uneasy look at each other. They told me there was no one nearby the wreckage that matched the description of the Santa rescuer. My heart began to pound frantically as I realized they didn't believe me, or they were worried that something bad had happened to my son and didn't dare say so as not to alarm me. They insisted I head to the hospital to receive further treatment, and despite my protests, that's exactly where they sent me. Lisa met me at the hospital. She was beyond the edge of sanity when she learned that our sudden couldn't be found. I was certain she would either need to place herself on suicide watch or seek immediate medical treatment. Sure enough, about a half hour later, I learned that they placed her in the psychiatric ward. I didn't blame her anger. This was all my fault. I was supposed to protect him. I told myself as I looked toward the snowy heavens. I had no idea if God was listening, but I begged for something to tell me what to do. God didn't answer, of course, but I did receive an unexpected visit that night. I was half asleep when I heard something on the roof. It sounded like a loud thud and then feet shuffling across the towels. I opened my weary eyes and peered up at the ceiling as something shook near the edge of my room. Aside, the moon's glow, it was pure darkness, and I couldn't see for sure what was coming, but some kind of strange shape manifested itself the top of the wall sliding down until it hit the floor with a wallop. The shape was foremost at first in the shadows, and I asked, Who are you? What do you want? Help me! Help! Then I heard a deep belly laugh, familiar and cold. I realized it was the same man that I'd seen inside the bus. You! You were with Henry, I shouted, as the man in the Santa costume appeared. Merry Christmas, Dylan. He said as he walked toward my bed. Where's my son? Nurse! Nurse, I need help in here! I shouted as I tried to push for assistance. Henry's safe and sound at the North Pole. Where he will stay, no 
unless you and your former wife prove yourself worthy of my blessing, the man answered. My mouth felt dry as he finished the simple statement. It hardly made any sense. Are you insane? What kind of game is this, I asked. That's precisely what it is, Dylan. A game. And you and your beloved have twelve days to play by the rules, successfully. Otherwise, your son will remain in my care. Considering how pitiful you've been as a parent, I would say this is a fair trade, he replied. Enough for this. You're speaking nonsense. Where's Henry? Give him back, you bastard. That's no way to speak to Santa. The man chided as he stroked his beard. It's no wonder Henry told me his Christmas wish was for Mommy and Daddy to get together again. You're hopelessly unimaginative, treating him like a prize to be bartered with in your squabbles, he snarled. Felt at a loss for words as I clenched my fists and tried to move, but it felt like weights were pushing down on my chest. This is madness. Please, I'll do anything you need to prove that I am a good father. I can't lose him, I begged. Santa gave me a wry smile and passed me a note. It looked like a simple Christmas poem. Partridge in a pear tree? What is this? Lyrics of a song, I asked. Your first task. Free the bird by sundown, and you'll get your next instruction. Fail, and Henry will be mine forever. Although the way this is shaping up, uh, maybe that's for the better. Santa returned to the shadows, grabbing his things and adding, Follow the rules of the ritual to the letter each day, and you'll get exactly what you're seeking. We'll show your true colors as individuals. If you fail even on a single task, the entire game will crumble. I expect you and your wife to prove your worthiness, Dylan. I expect you know what will happen if you fail. He snarled as he touched the wall and disappeared toward the roof again like a slinking pile of gunk. My fingers trembled as I held the note, wondering if anything I had experienced was real, when I heard a sharp scream. It sounded like Lisa somewhere nearby. I found myself unable to move, though, at least, for another fifteen minutes or so. Helpless, I listened as the scream stopped and murmurs filled the air. The man in the Santa suit must have gone to speak to Lisa as well, I realized. When all was silent, I got out of my bed hold my IV pole to the nurse's station, demanding to find out where my wife was. The employee didn't even have to tell me because a moment later, Lisa was there at her doorway. Dylan! Oh, God, Dylan! She shouted as she fell into my arms. Then I saw she had a note similar to mine, her eyes filling with fright. What does it mean? Lisa whispered. I couldn't give an answer because I still couldn't believe it was real. She closed the door behind us, her hands shaking, as she declared, I swear if this is some kind of prank, Dylan, I'll never forgive you. Lisa, I tried to tell you before and you didn't listen. It was that man dressed like Santa Claus. I think we have to obey these crazy rules to get Henry back, I told her. What we need to do is go to the police, she declared, and risk losing him entirely. I can't do that, Lisa. I have to try anything to get him back. I know I don't deserve to be his father, 
After everything I've done, this is bigger than my mistakes. We have to work together to save him. I was practically begging her to listen to me. Lisa didn't look comfortable with this, and to be honest, I wasn't either. But we agreed to meet up the following day. Despite the fact that it was Christmas, we didn't even spend the night together. The bitterness and anger and fear we felt permeated the very air. I kept clutching the note the stranger had given me, hoping I could fulfill the requests and follow the rules to get my son back, hoping that Henry would forgive me for this mistake. We met in the park about three miles from the hospital. Lisa still looked like she needed some medical attention, but she insisted that she was fine. A partridge in a pear tree. The only thing I could think of was in this damn park. There are a few pear trees around here. Maybe we have to snatch a bird from one of them, Lisa asked. The note we were given had all but crumbled into ash by that morning, making it impossible to read. We had to hope that we were doing what was expected of us. The next hour, we probably looked like a pair of idiots, wandering the park with binoculars, looking for a strange little bird. I even had to Google what they looked like. I was close to giving up when Lisa excitedly pulled my arm, pointing toward a tree. At last, we found the bird. She hurried up the tree, trying not to spoke the thing, as I kept a lookout. I felt like a fool. Why were we out here, trying to appease some crazy man that kidnapped our son? It didn't feel like it was going to work. Somehow, Lisa grabbed the bird and fell to the ground, crushing it with her weight. I looked at the broken partridge, certain this meant we'd failed. Yet instead, as I looked down at the list Santa had given us, a new item was added. A new rule to obey for tomorrow. Obtain two turtle doves. Is this, is this for real? Like from the song? I thought this first task was odd, but now I'm really confused. What does this guy hope to gain by making us run around like idiots? Lisa asked. None of it matters. Only Henry. We need to focus on where we can find those doves. She grew quiet for a while as we stared down at the bird she'd killed. This thing only got caught because it was a baby. Killed some poor defenseless animal. For what? Does that mean I can't even be a good parent? She whispered. I felt the need to comfort her, but she pulled my hand away from mine. Clearly, she wasn't looking to me for support. We finish this and get on with our lives, she declared, leaving me alone in the park with the dead bird. I guess it was too much to ask for a Christmas miracle. The next few days were filled with more bizarre requests from Henry's captors, rules that got tougher with each new task, but I won't bore you with all those details. We had to steal from a priest, raid a farm, something else equally crazy. To be honest, it was almost becoming too easy to handle these tasks. Lisa and I were hardly talking to each other, except when we had to. We would review the rule we had to follow for the day, figure out a way to obey it, and then complete the task. It was almost making me hopeful that Henry could return to us if we kept this up. That all changed on day five. I woke up to a blizzard. The news report said that most of the roads in our little town were closed. 
yet the list had a new task for us. Find five golden wedding rings, fingers included. When I first read it, I immediately felt appalled. Santa was expecting us to physically harm people just to get five golden rings? We couldn't go that far. I called Lisa, anxious to see what she wanted to do. This must be some kind of test from God or something. We've done some crazy things these past few days. And this is crossing the line. You can't hurt people, I told her. You're asking for my permission to give up on Henry, our son. The one that you're responsible for losing, she snapped. Her voice was nearly hysterical. No, I just... We have to find a way to communicate with this insane Santa Claus. Beg him to just let us have Henry back. Haven't we done enough for this freak already? I didn't want to become some kind of killer. But I wasn't sure there was an alternative. For a long time, Lisa didn't say a word. Then at last, she let out a long, sad sigh. I'll try to fulfill this task alone today. You try to contact this idiot and beg for forgiveness or whatever. Call each other again right around dinner. That way, if I haven't succeeded by then, you help me finish the job. Is that fair? Lisa asked. I was reluctant to agree, but knew that we didn't have a choice. I told her to be safe, and then looked toward the dangerous blizzard outside. It's time to prove that I can be the type of father Henry deserves, I thought, as I grabbed a heavy coat and gloves. Five minutes later, I was pushing down the road in my Honda, trying to ignore the triggering flashbacks I was having from the wreck. As the images flashed across my mind, I became more and more focused on reaching the mall where Henry and I had met Santa. Somehow, despite the weather, I made it in less than an hour. The place looked deserted, though, and the North Pole Photo Center, where we had talked to the stranger, was already being dismantled. I felt a rush of depression hit me, so I ran to one of the employees taking the props down. Please, sir, can you tell me if the person that played Mall Santa is still here, I asked. He looked at me like I was delirious. I think that gig ended just before the holidays. What's the issue? Did he make a kid a promise for Christmas? I think he did that for a lot of people this year. Surprised they didn't fire the guy. I stood there pondering his words, wondering if the stranger had used his magical powers to hurt other children. Could it be Lisa and I were not the only ones forced to obey these insane rules for twelve days? I began to wander the mall, searching for any sign of the Santa Claus. I wasn't expecting much, clutching the list of strange rules that the man had given us on Christmas Day. Maybe it was time I stopped treating this like a normal kidnapping and think outside the box... I thought as I reviewed the rules for each day. I still had all of the items that Santa had asked us to obtain. Was I meant to bring them somewhere? Almost as soon as the thought occurred to me, I saw a wall painting near the back of the mall, a corridor that seemingly went nowhere with graffiti that resembled Santa's workshop. It was insane, but I had to give it a try. I checked my watch and noticed it was time to call Lisa. I ran to the parking lot, nearly being pushed down by the cold, as I tried to make a phone call. I left a voicemail telling her to come to the mall. We 
was possible we could find Henry before having to fulfill the rest of these insane demands. She pulled up, popped the trunk, demanding that I not ask questions as she took out a small black bag. It looked like it was soaked with fresh blood. Inside I saw she had found five severed fingers, all with golden wedding rings still attached. I felt the need to vomit. This better be good. don't like the idea of carrying these around, Lisa told me. We made it through one of the back entrances of the mall to find the graffiti. I'd brought the other items and told Lisa to place them near the wall. This better work, she said irritably. We waited there for a moment, looking like a couple of weirdos, as nothing happened. Lisa was about to snatch the items back up. I grabbed her hand and pointed at the wall. Look there. It's rippling the way a pond would have struck by a stone. We watched for a moment in confusion and awe as the wall changed colors and pushed away from the center to reveal a long, dark tunnel. My crazy idea had worked. Come on, before anyone else sees us, Lisa ordered. We followed the tunnel until it became so dark we couldn't even see the hand in front of our faces. I told Lisa to grab a hold of the wall and slowly move forward. There must be something up ahead. We can't stop now, I told her. The darkness eventually became pure white, and I felt a cold, wet, soft powder hitting my shoes as we kept trudging forward. Snow? I said nothing, until at last the white was so blinding that I couldn't move. Then when I opened my eyes... I saw that we were in a vast, wintry wasteland. There was endless snow in every direction, and an intense blizzard barreling down on us. Is this the, the North Pole? Lisa asked as she clutched my body. The temperature dropped so dramatically that it felt like if we didn't get out of the cold soon, we'd freeze to death. I looked out in the direction we were going and saw a small hut. We started running. There was smoke coming from the chimney. I didn't know for sure what we were about to walk into, but I knew we couldn't last any longer amidst this frost. Pushing the door open, we were immediately greeted with a fresh smell of evergreen, a warm fire going and a pot of stew, and the most amazing display of Christmas decorations I'd ever seen. This has got to be some kind of psychedelic trip. Lisa whispered as we moved to the south side of the hut. I looked around the interior, realizing it was a lot larger than what it had looked like on the outside. I'd known ever since we started following these rules that the man we were dealing with had magical powers. And now, seeing all of this with my own eyes, there was an overwhelming feeling of dread as I realized that Henry was in danger if we couldn't save him. Look, there's a staircase to a basement. Lisa said as she pushed a bookcase out of the way. What if Santa's down there, or, or maybe something worse? I asked. We've come this far, we can't turn around now, she decided. Grabbing one of the lanterns on a nearby workbench, she took the lead and we descended into the basement. Cold swiftly returned as we went deeper, a strange sound of screams coming from below. I saw soon what the reason for the noise was. Iron cages hanging around different parts of the cave were housing children no older than our own. 
They hardly had any clothes on. They were starving bodies. And most looked like they'd been there longer than a few months. What was this deranged Santa Claus doing to them? My eyes drifted south to where strange green-skinned creatures toiled on manufacturing toys. A long conveyor belt ran toward a pivot of molten lava where the metal was slowly refined. It was a workshop on a grander scale than any I'd ever conjured possible. The elves. Do you notice anything strange about them, I asked, as I watched the creature. Does it matter? Lisa asked, as we hid and observed their labors. The creatures were mindless, obedient, almost brainwashed. Then I saw exactly what was bothering me. Each of them had a tattoo on their neck, with a designation or a number. Prisoners. I looked toward the children and realized the dark truth. Santa's transforming these kids into his workforce. This is child labor, slavery, I shouted. I was too loud because the creatures stopped in their work and turned toward me. Immediately, Lisa jumped and ran down a different corridor. I could hear the monsters scrambling to find us. Thankfully, our longer legs gave us the advantage to reach another staircase that led into what looked like a dungeon. The lantern guided our steps into the murky depths where we'd heard, of all things, singing. I froze at the bottom of the steps, where I saw at least a dozen more children, all being prepped for transformation, and then Santa himself, his reindeer, tearing at their skin as if they were prey as he used the barbed whip to force them into obedience. We have to do something, I told her. We came here for Henry. We can't help all of them, Lisa whispered as we carefully snuck to the backside of the workshop. I looked at all the heavy equipment and wondered if it was possible to shove it on Santa. Kill this madman. Free all of them. We found Henry first before I could finish that thought. Lisa suddenly forgot all about the mission to remain stealthy. We're going to get you out of here, she told him as she rattled on the cage. It was enough to get Santa's attention. Ho, 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 ho! What is this? I was starting to think that you two were going to be a boring test, but once again my intuition was wrong. Claus said as he turned toward us, his eyes gleaming playfully. Release them. We've been following all your rules, I told him. And yet it's only day five. You expect me to be lenient simply because you found this place? Did you really think, even if you saved him, you could stop me from finding him again? Santa asked. What do you want, then? This ritual is utter nonsense. We've proven we can be good parents, Lisa shouted back. Santa let out another belly laugh and pointed at his bloody bag she was still carrying. That's the sign of a good parent? You have vandalized property, destroyed innocent animals, and even stole from the dead. You're not worthy of having a child. I looked at all the items we'd gained so far. What was the point of all this? Just a sick game? I realized as soon as that little boy came to me and told me that his mommy and daddy were fighting, I had yet another chance to work my magic. You underestimate what Christmas is and how vital my rules are. This is the way the world works. I will make you follow those rules, and you will still never get Henry back. 
He's mine now, forever, Santa said. The elves were circling us, and I feared the worst, turning to Lisa and holding her. I'm sorry, this is my fault. If I just listened to you, we wouldn't be here now, I told her. Tears covered her eyes as she clung to me and admitted, I know we were going through a rough patch, and Henry shouldn't have had to suffer. I wasn't a good parent either. We both failed him. Santa told his elves to stop in their march and commented, It amazes me how often people usually realize their flaws as they're facing impending doom. Your words have a ring of truth. I can tell that you mean what you say, but I'm still not sure you deserve the boy. Take us instead, I said. And Lisa immediately agreed. There are times we've been awful parents, but he shouldn't be the one to suffer for this. Henry has a bright future ahead of him. All we have is just regret and bitterness, she admitted. What use would I have for you? Adults cannot become my worker elves, he sneered. Please, our son deserves better than this. We followed your rules because we thought it meant we could get him back. Stop playing these mind games and just have a heart. Lisa begged. Santa Claus was stroking his beard and looked toward the reindeer that shivered in the corner. I do need someone new to pull the sleigh but I can only take one of you to replace the boy. The other can return to the real world alongside Henry. I'll give you two minutes to decide. My body felt numb as I looked at Lisa, our entire future being decided in such a short period of time. It should be you. I've been unfaithful. I've ruined our marriage. I wasn't a good father, I told her. It looked like she was about to agree with me. But then at the last second, she told Santa, I'll be the one to stay. Let Henry return with my husband. Lisa, what are you doing? I deserve this punishment, not you, I told her. I believe in second chances, and this is yours. She said as the elves took her toward the reindeer cages. Don't make me regret this, Dylan. Then Santa released Henry, and he came into my arms even as the man in the red suit sprinkled fairy dust over our faces. I held Henry tight as I began to feel very sleepy, my eyes growing heavy as darkness took me over. When I woke up, we were back at the mall. A couple of patrol officers found us asleep near the graffiti and told me I had to leave because it was past closing time. Henry was still fast asleep, and I carried him to the car, my body numb with pain and anger, as I walked at home, I took him to bed and then went down to where all the Christmas decorations were still hanging. I destroyed all of them, tossing them into the fireplace. The holiday meant nothing to me now. I was just about to toss the magical list that Santa had given us when I paused and saw that another item had been added to the list for day six. Another rule to obey blindly and be tricked into thinking I could get Lisa back. Was that the new carrot Santa Claus was dangling in front of me? I couldn't bring myself to toss it into the fire. Even if it was hopeless, I wanted to try to fix my broken heart and this broken life that Henry and I had had. So before the morning sun rose, I went out and found what I needed for the next rule. I hunted six geese and chopped their heads off, 
offering them as another ritual to Santa, near my house before going to wake Henry. I told him what I had intended to do to try and get her back, and he shook his head, begging me to stop. The rules! They'll just consume you too, Dad. I can't lose you both, he pleaded. Such wisdom from a little boy. My hands were shaking as I looked down at the list that commanded my full attention. The only way to win is letting go, he insisted. Together we took the list to the fire, and together we burnt the list. We held each other and cried. We knew what this meant, but the ritual needed to end. I beg any of you who listen to this tale, beware what simple lyrics hide. The twelve days of Christmas cannot be finished. I'm certain only death and destruction await the finale. I hope you enjoyed 12 Days by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website, just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. As stated earlier, you can find his work almost everywhere you look. But like tonight's stories, be forewarned that some of them may look right back at you. If you do decide to stop by the profile... Please leave a kind word and let them know you heard about them on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of the program and of tonight's featured author. As a reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure that he'd much appreciate it as well. Now, before we go, I'd like to also take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simply scarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jari channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. 
And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.